you guys for serving us. I do want to uh, personally express my gratitude to the graduates uh, for all that you have given to Crosspoint. It's been uh, an honor. I know I haven't been the only one to shepherd you during this time, but just personally the privilege of, of shepherding you during your time in school and, and the ways that you've given to Crosspoint, we really are grateful uh, for you. We're grateful to know smart people like you. For those of us who will not ever be in that place that you are and studying the things that you are, uh, we've consider it a great blessing to be a part of your lives, and we pray for you as you as you go. I want to invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 16. Acts, chapter 16. And that, excuse me. And then I'd also ask if you'd open your bulletin, and you'll see a folded piece of white paper there, and hopefully those notes will be helpful to you as we walk through this, this teaching, an introduction to the book of Philippians. As you know, we, we've been studying prayer for the last couple weeks, and what I want to do this morning is introduce the book of Philippians, which we'll be walking through for the next several weeks, and then next week, as we look at Paul's prayer for the the believers at Philippi, we will conclude our our series on prayer with, with that teaching, Paul's prayer for God's people, and we'll look at how God's people can pray for one another. This morning, I do want to just do basically an introduction to the book of Philippians for you. Uh, We're going to look into a lot of history this morning as we begin, and some of you may hate history, but I hope that as you look at at some of this history to the city of Philippi, I hope it'll help you see that biblical history and world history are not on different pages. They're not separate things. You see, world history is the history of God, a sovereign God, working in all creation and bringing all things to the place that he desires for his glory. World history will culminate in God's redemptive act in which Christ will return and draw all people, all those who have believed into himself, and all those who have not believed will be in hell, eternally separated from him. Biblical history and world history should not be separated. And so I hope as we look at this city of Philippi that this will help you see this in some way. With all that said this morning, I hope you see this thread, this thread. Your Lord determines your life. Your Lord determines your life. And it depends on who your Lord is. You see, we all have some Lord. You're not just free like you think you are. The Bible makes clear that we either serve sin or we serve God, our creator, if you think that you serve yourself and do what you want to do, what you're in reality are doing is you're serving sin. Sin is your master, not yourself. You see, the Bible makes clear that being a Christian is a very official thing. Now, it's not that there's necessarily any paperwork involved, but it's a bigger deal than even transferring citizenship from one nation to another. For instance, going from being a U.S. citizen to being a citizen of the U.K. When I was traveling several weeks ago going to Uganda, I had never been out of the country before. It was my first time. And I realized how important it is that you keep your passport with you at all times. Thankfully, I didn't have the bad experience of forgetting it at some point but if I did I can see what the consequences would be like during when you're going through the airport if you've never done this before you are checked multiple times with for your passport and I remember going through and I'd have a hat on and they'd look at my passport picture and I'd even have to take my hat off to make sure that you know the same guy it was the same guy in both places it was very important everywhere I went that I had my passport 
especially as I went outside the United States. I was going through the London airport, the airport in, in Uganda. You see, every day I live under the reality of being an American citizen. It has its benefits, but it also prevents me from doing certain things. I, I don't have access to the political system of Europe. Uh, there are things that I can't access there. But you see, being a Christian is much like being a citizen except greater. It has greater consequences. You see, we either live in rebellion against God or we live, in, we live under His rule. We either submit to His design for our lives or we reject it. You see, the Bible is very plain about who we are. Whether we're in submission to God, a citizen of His kingdom, or we're not. We're under the reign of the evil one. We're in the dominion of darkness. I wonder if you know where you are. Or is it cloudy? You see, you're either under one or you're under the other. And so I hope you see this one thread throughout everything we talk about. Your Lord determines your life. You have nothing to do with it. You have no rights. It doesn't matter if you're American or citizen. If you are God's, you do what he says. And if you are Satan's, you are doing what he says. So, your Lord determines your life. Let's look at the history of Philippi. How's that for an introduction? History of Philippi. If I can get some of the, the slides to, to come up here. I want to show you first where Philippi... Well, let's start here. <laughs> These guys are very lifelike, aren't they? This is actually Philip II of Macedon. That's the one on the left on your side. Yeah, on the, on the left. Philip II was the father of Alexander the Great. You can see the commonalities, right? They both have their nose broken off. We're not sure what, what happened there. But Philip II of Macedon founded Philippi in around 356 B.C. He named it after himself, as you can see. He was Philip II, and he named it creatively Philippi. <clears throat> but there's another historical event that happened in Philippi. In 42 B.C., Mark Antony, I'm sure you remember him, and Octavian, who would later become Augustus Caesar, defeated Brutus and Cassius in Philippi. Now, if you know the, the story, the play, these were the assassins of Julius Caesar. And this is where a battle took place between these groups. If we can check the next slide. This is actually the battleground right at Philippi where this, this battle took place between Antony and then Octavian, who would become the emperor, and Cassius and Brutus. And that Brutus would commit suicide there, they would be defeated. This is, after this event, many veteran soldiers would settle in Philippi. So in many ways, Philippi would become a mini-Rome. The architecture would look much like Rome. The religion in Philippi would be just like Rome. It was an important place politically and economically. Because of the large Roman citizenry there, there would be uh, much of the emperor cult. There would be gods to the emperors. If you look back in history and study archaeology, you can see inscriptions to the emperors as gods. But then also Antony, Mark Antony, had placed the Philippi under the protection of Isis, who was the fertility god of Egypt. You know that if you look at history, that Antony had a strong relationship with Egypt, and so he placed it under the protection of this Egyptian god. And so why this is important? Why is it important? Because when Paul came to the land of Philippi, this was a land of great syncretism. 
This was a land that was very Roman. We'll see in some of the texts that we look at that they did not respect Jews and didn't invite Jews to where they, they were. There was much Jewish hatred in some ways. So this is the history. Philippi, this is what's happening. And then sometime around 50 A.D., a man named Paul steps into Philippi, a land of great great syncretism of religion, a land with no Christians. No Christians. So what do you do? How do you start a church where there are no Christians? This may not be a question that you think about often, but this is something that people face every day in other parts of the world where there are no believers in those areas. Maybe this is a question you can ask, and I hope to bring this application through. What about when there are no Christians in your workplace? What about when your neighbors are not Christians? What do you do? Believe that Paul, that what they do in Philippi gives us a model for ministry as we think about how to give our lives to seeing other people come to faith in Christ. Will you look at Acts chapter 16 with me? Verses 9, we'll begin in verse 9, and we're not going to read all the way through the verse 40 as you see on your page there. But we want to highlight some of the things that Luke highlights. And asking this question, how churches get started, we also need, this is the first church in Europe. This is the first church on European soil. It's quite an amazing thing. Now we know that there are churches all over Europe, and we can trace them back to the church at Philippi. Start with me in verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. What does this verse tell us about how churches get started? We know that he's about to go to Philippi. Well, this verse tells us that churches get started but with spirit-led disciples. Notice what happens in the text. Paul has a dream. A man appears to him in the night. A man of Macedonia, a certain area, region. And this man is standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia. And all he says, what does he ask them to do? Help us. Just help us. But look at what they conclude. When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, did that man in the vision, did he ever say, come help us by preaching the gospel to us? No, he never said that. He simply said, come over and help us. Well... These spirit-led believers, when they have this dream, they conclude by it that God is sending them to preach the gospel to the people of Macedonia. You see, spirit-led disciples know what other people need most. They need the gospel. They need the good news of Jesus. All people are dead in their sin without God. And so they need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And so they conclude, we need to go and preach the gospel to share God's word with these people. Well, what do they do next? So, verse 11, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. Now, notice this. The one thing this man in the dream tells them is, Come to Macedonia and help us. 
The believers conclude that he's called us, God's called us to preach the gospel. You know, see, to spirit-led disciples, it's obvious what God wants his people to do. He wants his people to share the gospel with others so that they would know him and have a relationship with him. Now, does the man in the dream tell them exactly where to go? No. But as they go, these disciples conclude that the best place to go is Philippi, a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. Let me just make a small piece of application here. Sometimes God's not going to shine the light down and say, this is exactly what you need to do. It's not going to happen like that sometimes. And so what believers in God, followers of Christ are to do, are to know His Word and to know Him so well that you know what God would want you to do. He wants them to share the gospel. This is something they can just conclude in their minds because they know God. And so what is there that might be obvious in your life that God would be telling you to do? And you might be waiting for a sign from heaven. God just wants you to be obedient. You see what happens in this passage? They just are obedient. So verse 13, well verse 12, From there to Philippi, a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, we remained in this city some days. This is basically all Luke tells us about timeline. He just says they remained in the city for some days. We don't know how long. But what happens while they're there? On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the woman who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Look what happens. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Here Luke highlights the first conversion in this city. How do you start a church where there are no believers, not one single believer. First, we have spirit-led disciples who just obey God, and they go and they conclude God wants us to share the message of salvation. So first, if you're wondering, how do I see believers come come to faith in Christ in my workplace as neighbors? First, share the gospel. Just share the good news of Jesus. They find a strategic place for sharing the gospel. They go down by this riverside and they go and they share with them. And look what happens. It says that God opened the eyes of Lydia that she would pay attention to what was said by Paul. You see, God opens the hearts of people. It's not us. It's not how convincing our message is. It's not how good our strategy is. God opens the hearts of people. Please hear this. Evangelism is rooted in the belief that it's God who works in the hearts of people. So I want to ask you, when you go from here, you know, you go to church and then usually they urge you, go and tell people about Jesus. When you do that, or when you feel like you should do that, but you don't, is it, is it a guilt thing? Is it something like, I have to do this because this is what God tells me to do? Or is it, I do this because I trust that God is the one who opens the hearts of people. You see, this is the motivation behind evangelism. That God is the one who works in the hearts of people to draw draw them to himself. Evangelism is not just an obligation. We do it because we trust God who is the one who works. Are you fearful that maybe your presentation isn't just quite put together right? You see, you're trusting in yourself and not 
the good news of Jesus, which it says is what God uses to bring people to salvation. Please have courage. Please trust that it's not you. It's the good news of Jesus that brings people to Him. Here's what we can expect if we devote our lives to spreading the good news of Jesus in our community and in our world. God will work in our circumstances to create more opportunity and to draw people to Himself. Hear, hear, what, hear what happens next. I'm not going to read all of this text, but I want you to know what happens next. This is how the church at Philippi gets started. Lydia comes to faith, and Paul and his friends go and stay with her. While they're there, the next scene, they go to a place of prayer, and this woman is following them, a woman who it says has this spirit of divination. It's obvious that it's not from the Lord, but it's from Satan. She's following them. She's following them, and she's aggravating them by the things that she's saying. And so Paul turns around and tells the spirit to come out of her. What happens after that? Well, someone gets frustrated because they're not making money off this woman, and so they send them to jail. So now you probably have at least two believers in Philippi, Lydia and the woman who has had some sort of demon cast out of her. What happens in jail? Paul and Silas, his buddy, are in jail and they begin to pray and sing. While they're praying and singing, somehow the jail shakes, an act of God. And the jailer is is fearful because if these prisoners get away... They're going to kill him. The authorities are going to kill him because he let them loose. But Paul and Silas stay nearby and they say, hold on, hold on, we're here, we're here. What happens to the jailer? He and his whole family become believers. They share with him the good news of Jesus. He even asks, how do I become saved? How do I come to know the God that you know? This is the amazing thing that Luke is teaching us through this story of the beginning of the church at Philippi. All Paul Paul and his buddies do is walk around the city. They go around the city and they seek out opportunities to share the good news of Jesus. And what happens when they do that? A church gets started. A church that he will write this letter to. Luke is highlighting for us that all these guys do is they're faithful. And in that, people come to know Jesus. And so how does this apply to you? Let me ask you this question. How does your life make a difference from the gospel? Here's here's the reality that we all know. A lot of us aren't going to be like Paul, right? We're not going to be traveling around the the European coast there. It looked like a beautiful gig, except for he gets beat. There's some really good pictures of the places that he goes. We're not going to be traveling all over the world. A lot of us aren't. That's just the truth. Some of us will go on mission trips. I hope that you do. I hope that you go overseas. But the reality is that most of our lives, each of us, will be spent in one place. Some of you have already spent most of your life and you'll spend the rest of your life here in Baton Rouge or Prairieville. So how does your life make a difference for the gospel like these guys did? I want to introduce you to a concept. It's called faithful presence. Faithful presence. So there's a blank there, and so fill that in with presence. This is very simple, but just in case it's unclear. Faithful. It just means to remain true to something. Just remain true to it. And then presence is simply where you are. Where you are. Now when these terms go together, what it means is that we don't take where we live as an accident. We don't believe that we just live in Baton Rouge or Prairieville by default. This is just where I ended up. I don't really like it here. The weather is blazing hot. It really just stinks here, and I I don't know why I'm here. 
That's not what faithful presence means. You see, when we look at faithful presence and we try to live faithfully present where we are, we believe that God ordains the time and places where we should live. You see, this is what Acts teaches us also, is that God has ordained the times and places where you would live. And so, for those of you who aren't real happy with where you live right now, or maybe you're just seeing this as a season, friend, it's a season that God has ordained. It's not an accident. And so wherever you are, if you're just kind of like, I can't wait to get through this, then you're not accepting where God has you. What God has called you to is to be faithfully present where you are and to live to his glory where you are. And so how do you be faithfully present? How do you apply these things that Paul is applying in his context? Let me read this quote to you. It is here, where you are, where you are, it is here through the joys, sufferings, hopes, disappointments, concerns, desires, worries of the people with whom we are in long-term and close relation, family, neighbors, co-workers, community. It is here where we find our authenticity as a body and as believers. It is here where we are, where we learn forgiveness, humility, where we practice kindness, hospitality, charity, where we grow in patience, wisdom, and become clothed in compassion, gentleness, and joy. Here's what God wants you and I to see. Yes, He has called us to do missions and to go to the nations, but He wants you to see that His kingdom is to come in your life within the very square inch where you live every day. The greatness of all His glory, of who He desires you to be and transform you to be, is to happen on your street corner, in your neighborhood, in your workplace. I think this is highlighted well by Jeremiah 29.7, which Mario read for us a couple Sundays ago. Listen to this verse. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile, God says to his people, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. In the welfare of the city you will find your welfare. This was illustrated to me very well by actually uh, a person who was not a believer just a couple weeks ago. We went to a crawfish boil in the mid-city area. And while we were there, we interacted with some of the, the neighbors in, that, in the Capitol Heights area. And some of the people had only been Baton Rouge residents for less than 10 years. They were adults, but they had moved to Baton Rouge from other places where they grew up and had planted their lives. But the amazing thing was, is that as I had conversations with those people, is that they were so familiar with all the political issues and all the social issues going on within Baton Rouge. We're not long-term residents necessarily, or not as long-term as many of you are. But the incredible thing was that you could tell they cared about their city and about the things that went on here. You see, I think what the gospel wants to teach us and what we need to apply to our lives from the good news of Jesus is that if you are to live somewhere, then you are to care for that place and the people in it. And so I wonder, for you Christians, how do you care for the place that you live? How does the gospel manifest itself in your neighborhood through your life? It was an incredible also illustration to me when Miss Eunice Janusa died just a couple of weeks ago, a lady who's been in our church for a number of years. Miss Eunice has been homebound for 
quite a while. She hasn't been necessarily a part of her community as much as she would like to have been. But when Miss Eunice passed away, the Eunice Sunday School class was the first group of people that were just there and said, we want to hold it at the church and we want to have a meal here. We want to care for the family in whatever way we can. You see, this is what the gospel teaches us to do. When people are hurting, we're there. When people need help, Christians are there. We're eager to help where we are, to live out the gospel in everything that we do where we are. And so, how does this apply to you? You're to be a spirit-led disciple. You interact with God through His Son and through His Spirit. And God tells you sometimes in the mornings, you need to go do this and share with this person. There's a particular person that you need to interact with today and you need to speak this truth into their life. You need to be a spirit-led disciple. There may be a man that appears to you in a dream, and if he does, you, need to, you better be sure that you're supposed to do something. Highlight strategic places for sharing the gospel. Where do you live? This is your greatest opportunity to share. This is why Crosspoint does home groups, or in my mind, this is why we do home groups. Because you don't live at the church. You live in your neighborhoods. That's where you spend the majority of your time. So what we desire is that you would live in that neighborhood and that you would live out the good news of Jesus in that neighborhood. And that in your home group, your neighbors would find a place, a refuge, where they can find community and they can also hear the truth of the Scriptures. And so I hope you're living it out. I just want... I want to ask you, and I hope you answer this question for yourself, how are you caring for your neighbors in such a way that it's evident that, they, that you know Jesus, that Jesus makes a difference in your life, that He transforms your life? You trust God to open the hearts of people. This is how you make a difference for the gospel where you live, as you keep sharing. That person who you've shared with three or four times and they still seem stubborn and closed off, you keep kindly, patiently sharing. Sharing the life of Jesus. Sharing the care, the forgiveness of Jesus. You keep speaking truth into their lives. Whoever it is, family member, person in your neighborhood, person at the store, whoever it is, you keep sharing truth and you trust God to open the hearts of people. This is how your life makes a difference for the gospel. Faithful presence faithful presence, being there and honoring the Lord in the way that you are there consistently. Now, let's, let's move on. This is how the church at Philippi gets started. It's really exciting. There's just a few believers through their interactions with people and their time at Philippi. Listen, Paul and his friends, they get kicked off, get kicked out of Philippi very quickly. But there are already believers there. The Holy Spirit works through that church and it builds, it builds a church. And so this is who Paul is going to write to in the book of Philippi. These people that we've just looked at. Now will you turn with me to the book of Philippians and we'll look just at the introduction here. Just at the introduction. Why words matter? This is what we want to consider in these first two verses. Why do words matter? Words matter, and why we're going to see that Paul, Paul's words in this introduction matter. Words matter because they're, when, we're, when they're bathed in truth. This is what we're going to see in these just 
few words that Paul speaks in two verses. Words matter when they're bathed in the truth and the reality of who God is and what He's done. Listen to these verses, these first two. Verse 1, Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That seems so simple. It's just a quick introduction. It's just like when I write a letter and write, Dear so-and-so, or just so-and-so. Isn't it? No. Paul's greetings matter. Please don't run through this and act as if it's simply just a greeting to these people. It matters. It matters because what Paul is doing is he's introducing his whole theology in this letter. Let's look at some particular words that are important. First, servants. Slaves of Christ Jesus. That's what this word means. Paul and Timothy are servants of Christ. As we talked about at the beginning, Paul's whole theology and everything is that a person is either a slave of sin or a slave of Jesus. I've written some verses there that you can reference in this, but this is foundational for Paul. Either you're a slave of sin or you're a slave of Jesus. And so what Paul says from the outset is, Paul and Timothy were servants of Jesus. Now here's another reason that this matters. Paul is a servant to the people of Philippi, right? He, he helps those people and wants to serve those people. But what Paul wants to say is that first and foremost, he's a servant of Jesus. And so whatever he says to the people of Philippi, and in whatever way he serves them, it's only as an extension of his service of Christ. Now, how does, this, how does that apply to us? First of all, when, when I come to teach, I want to serve you through the Word. But first and foremost, I'm a servant of Christ. And so I'm not worried necessarily about trying to just entertain or just to make laugh or anything like that because I serve Christ and I know that it's His Word that speaks for you. When you serve others... The reason you serve others is because you serve Christ. And so do some of you, do you feel worn out sometimes just with serving other people? You just don't have it in you anymore? Is it because maybe God hasn't called you to serve in that way? Or maybe because you're serving out of your own strength and not out of God's strength? You see, our service to others is only an extension of our service to Jesus. And so what Paul wants us to see from the outset is that they are servants of Christ, and from that, they are serving others. That is so superior to everything else. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. The second word that matters is saints. We won't spend long on this, but I just want you to see the biblical foundation of what we believe. There are churches who will label certain people saints because they've attained some level of spirituality. And what I want you to see that is, that is biblically based is that all those who are in Christ Jesus are saints. There, were, there aren't some who will die after who we will elevate to some certain level of saints because it's everyone who is in Jesus, who is trusted in His name and covered by His blood, Everyone is a saint in Christ. In Christ. Let's look at this 
this phrase is most important and we'll spend the most time in of all, of all that we're looking at. To all the saints in Christ Jesus. This phrase, please don't miss this part of the sermon. If you want to wake up now and just listen to this part, it's fine. But please hear this. This phrase, in Christ, is used at least 47 times in the New Testament. In Christ. It's eight times in this letter. In four chapters of the book of Philippians, this phrase, in Christ, is used eight times, and that's not including when it's used with just a pronoun. This is a Paul phrase. He loves this phrase, and those 47 times in the New Testament are primarily Paul, where he uses this phrase, in Christ. So, all the saints in Christ. Is Paul just, I mean, does that mean anything, or is it just part of the introduction? It's just him getting through that to get to something else. No, it's extremely important. Listen to just a little bit more of the book of Philippians, where Paul uses this phrase. Philippians 1.26, you may have ample cause to glory or boast in Christ Jesus. 2.5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours. How? In Christ Jesus. 4-7, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's a phrase he uses throughout Philippians. What does it mean though? How do we get inside Jesus? How does this happen? You see what Paul is referring to here is a domain under which we live. This is how we started, right? With identity, citizenship. Your Lord determines your life. What Paul is referring to is you've been transferred from the domain of darkness to live under the domain of Jesus. When your sins are forgiven and you trust in Christ, you are in Christ. It's a domain under which you live. Listen to Ephesians 2, 1-6. through This is in your notes and these are very important for understanding this concept. Paul says, beginning in verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Did you catch that? We were all children of wrath, all mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were, again, dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places, in Christ. You see the two domains that Paul is talking about here? You're either dead in your trespasses and sins. You live under the domain of darkness, under sin. Sin rules your life. Even the good you do, you do for your glory, not for God's. So it's no longer good. It's stained by your sin. Or in Christ. In Christ. So the believers in Philippi who are in Christ. The reason this is important is because this is how they're a part of the community of faith. 
They are in Christ. They've been transformed. I want to plead with some of you for just a moment, and I want to hopefully help you understand something and offer a bit of my testimony here. I grew up in church my entire life, and I was a pretty scared kid, so I didn't do a lot of bad stuff. It's mostly just because I was scared, not because I wasn't bad. (laughs) I was just scared of what would happen if I did it. And so I became a believer at a fairly young age. And at that time, I had not done a lot of bad things. And so here's the, the problem with that. It's not bad that I became a believer at a young age, but here's the, the struggle that can happen. Is I can look at when I became a believer and I can say, well, I wasn't really a bad kid, so there wasn't really much change that had to take place. In, in one sense, I, I'd been, I was just a believer almost all along. I mean, I didn't really have to change much because I already wasn't doing something bad. I was already a good person. Have you heard that before? I was a good person before. I I mean, I didn't do that much bad stuff. Here's where I would plead with you and hopefully help you understand. The Bible is very clear that it doesn't matter what you've physically done. You're not a good person. You're not. You are dead in your transgressions and sins. You see, it wasn't just what you did physically. It was what you do in your heart. You have rebelled against God. And so hopefully this can be a day in which you, even if you, maybe you are really a believer, but you need to see your testimony very differently. You were never good. This is the testimony of the Scriptures. Only God is good. Remember that statement from Jesus? When the man comes up and says, Good teacher, teach me how I should be saved. And Jesus says, Only God is good. This is truth. Friend, please see this. If you're basing your salvation in the fact that you really never did much bad stuff, and you did confess, you did pray the prayer, that's not salvation, friend. Salvation is you were dead in your sins and God in His grace brought you to Himself. Yes, you do confess your sins. Yes, you do cry out for Him to save you. But recognize that it's not just the prayer, it's the work of God's Spirit in your heart that saves you. And then His Lordship. This is where it ties in. His Lordship determines your life. And so this is how you can look at your life and determine, am I a believer? Am I a believer? Well, does the fruit show it? It's not that you're saved by works, but it's when God saves you, your life changes. It's not the same. There is fruit. So, in Christ, I want to ask you, are you in Christ? Only you can answer that question. Are you in Christ or are you under the domain of darkness? Let's move on. We're we're finishing up here. Paul, in the second verse, is going to speak, in a sense, a blessing over the people. He's writing, but he's praying as he writes. Words are meaningful because they're God-breathed. 
We know this about the entire Scriptures. And so Paul says in verse 2, in a sense, praying over the people, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He is praying, he is speaking to them. Grace and peace. He's offering it to the people. In a sense, I want to, if I could offer it to you, I offer to you, I pray in the Lord, grace over you and peace over you. These two concepts are incredibly important for Paul. First, grace. It's Paul's theology, theology excuse me, about God's way of saving us and keeping us. Paul trusts that we're never saved by anything we do, but we're saved by God's grace, and we're not even kept by anything we do. We're kept by God's grace. Every day we're dependent on His grace. The word itself refers to undeserved favor, love, and kindness. It's all grace for Paul. It's all grace for us. The next word, peace. In order to have peace, we must have grace. We have to have been forgiven. But peace, because we're created by God and we rebel against Him, there's naturally a bit of chaos in our lives. There's unrest in our world. It's evident in my life. Every time I, I get frustrated about things, I'm reminded when that, well, there's not going to be complete peace until one day when God returns. There's personality conflicts we have with others and we're like, God, come now and take this person, you know? We want peace. There's a battle within me between good and evil, anxiety about the future. And so Paul is speaking to them the peace offered in Christ. Listen to this verse in Colossians 1. We'll be finished. For in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to bring everything back together. Reconcile, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. This is what Jesus has done in the cross. He makes peace between you and God where you've rebelled against God, but He also makes peace between us through, so that when I look at you and I may have a personality conflict with you, I look at you and I see the cross and I say, oh, I know that God gives me forgiveness and He gives this person forgiveness. And so I seek peace with all of God's people and even with those who rebel against God. I desire that they know Him. And so I see the cross and God's desire to forgive them as well. This peace is in Christ. And so Paul, even in writing a letter, he makes the words matter because he's praying it over the people. I offer to you, I extend to you God's peace, God's grace and God's peace. And the last two phrases, the last two words. Through God and through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how these things come through the Father. The grace comes as an extension of His kindness and His love. And then that phrase, through Christ Jesus. Through Christ Jesus. This is how His kindness comes. Through His sending of His own Son who would bear our sin. Do you have grace and peace this morning? I would ask you. Are you experiencing His sustaining grace and peace? The strength of God's mighty arm as He sustains you and He fills you with His love and His peace. I hope you are. If you're not, the way that you can is by confessing your sin and crying out for His grace. And His grace and His peace will be right there to meet you. It doesn't mean your life will be perfect or that you'll have everything that you want. But it's better than that. Because you have Him. You have Him. I'm going to invite Stephanie to come up and we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper this morning.
I want to give you just a second. We're not going to take long, but I want to give you a second. For all the believers in the room, it doesn't matter if you're a part of our body. If you have confessed Christ, then we invite you to take of this table with us. I want to invite the believers just to take a moment to confess just apparent sin in your life or unconfessed sin. Just take a minute to do that so that you might partake without hindrance of the body and blood of Christ by which you receive salvation. And then for those who have not believed, or you're, maybe you're walking in rebellion against God in some way, will you please not partake of this table if you're not going to confess your sin? I ask you, please don't. Ask it to pass on. At least be honest about where you are. Please. Let me give you a moment to pray.